Thank you all. Um, really great to be here in Melbourne. I love the weather. You guys think I'm crazy, but it's been quite warm in LA lately, and it's wonderful to be in a place where I can put on a jacket. Um, thank you, Naomi, and everyone here at the Naomi Milgram Foundation who put on this forum, and RMIT made it very comfortable for me to be here. Um, today, and I didn't know that there was a TV show last night um, on this topic, um, but I'm going to present a handful of possible utopias centered on livable city benchmarks. These benchmarks that I'm going to include today include infrastructure, health, culture, and housing. But first, I want to ask a question. Is livability utopian? I ask this knowing full well that Melbourne is a real place. We're in it. We're grounded here on this ancient land. And it's routinely ranked among the most livable of cities. But I come from Los Angeles, a city of palm trees, of movie stars, and orange groves. It's a place that Rainer Banham famously called an instant architecture and an instant townscape. It's a place that's both the zenith and the deer of livability. And as Andrew said, it goes from movie stars in Pleasantville to Mike Davis in films like Crash or Earthquake, where the city is demolished. If we believe the strains of La La Land, which I'm sure you've all seen and have running in your head at all times, LA is a city of dreams. And their dreams and reality are simultaneous. This is why the writer Eve Babbitts begins her 1974 novel, Slow Days, Fast Company, The World, The Flesh, and L.A., with the following lines. This is a love story, and I apologize. It was inadvertent, but I want it clearly understood from the start that I don't expect it to turn out well. So we have the love and the doom simultaneously under our palm tree skies. Los Angeles, uh, it tends to rate pretty low on any livability index. The last time I looked, it was somewhere in the 40s on a list of 50 cities. Um, as such, it's really a strange place to use as a model to talk about livability. But we can also understand it as a place built on aspirations of livability, right? This is like the dream center. This is where it's produced. Um, micro and macro utopias are conjured up out of the smoggy air, which is no longer so smoggy. And California's utopian heritage dates back nearly 200 years with religious, socialist, Marxist, the theosophical communities centered within a short drive of LA. Each of these utopias, according to Robert Hine, are, quote, resplendent, reformed mankind gathering in an ideal society. And what is a livable city if not a place achingly aiming for that ideal, the ideal infrastructure, the ideal culture, ideal health, ideal housing. And I just want to note that it's also important to discuss utopia within an architecture and urbanism context as a subset of speculative design, a way of representing a future that has not yet arrived. Utopias have a way of wanting to rectify the ills of today or of yesterday through design. 
The problem, however, with speculation is that it can easily be dismissed as seductive marketing or frivolous science fiction, which is why it's really necessary to use uh, utopias as a way to put forth a vision that we want to see, which is why it's necessary to pair that dream of that vision with the complex realities of daily life. The two extremes require one another. So I'm going to begin here with infrastructure. This is the 1929 Olmsted-Bartholomew Plan for Los Angeles, a report by the brothers John Charles Olmsted and Frederick Law Olmsted, Jr. These are the sons of Frederick Law Olmsted, who famously designed Central Park. It outlines a network of 444 miles of connecting green spaces around the city. And if you squint your eyes here, use soft eyes, uh, you can see the green dots sort of linking through the, the whole of Los Angeles. These include like a parkway along the Los Angeles River, and it's a utopia of a naturalistic ideas in public space, of connectivity, of wellness in a city that Los Angeles is trying to achieve still. So recently, when discussing plans for a restored LA River, um, 51 miles of a restored river. Um, it's a green space that could flow from the valley to the port of Long Beach. Uh, LA Mayor Eric Garcetti compared the river to the Olmsted's emerald necklace, which we see here. It's a parallel vision, a way to make the city livable for all residents. But all infrastructure in LA must face down the freeway. If we were just talking about autonomous vehicles and less cars, we still face the fact that we have freeways and cars all over the place. The long defining space of public space of Los Angeles really is the freeway. These concrete ribbons support a complex choreography of individual drivers. In her white album essay, Joan Didion described the freeway as, quote, the only secular communion Los Angeles has. For her, the transference of the individual to the common comes in the art of freeway driving. She writes, quote, mere driving on a freeway is in no way the same as participating in it. Actual participation requires total surrender a concentration so intense as to seem a kind of narcosis, a rapture of the freeway. The mind goes clean and the river takes over, the rhythm takes over. And our dear friend Rainer Banham in defining his ecology autotopia in the fourth, the fourth ecology in his book, concludes that the freeway system is not simply infrastructure but it is now, quote, a single, comprehensible place, a coherent state of mind, and a complete way of life. So today, the LA River, this concretized channel we see here, which is a place for movie shoots like Grease and Terminator, um, is poised to foster that holistic way of life. It could be a space of natural and urban communion. The infrastructure that we know as the LA River has returned to the public imagination with a force. Its transformation, we can think about as being inspired by the High Line in New York City 
It's a benchmark for those in the placemaking or livability business, and today's version of the Bilbao effect, in which infrastructure hardscape becomes the basis for green space. It's a public-private enterprise that changes a piece of derelict infrastructure into a capital improvement at a civic scale. It requires grassroots efforts of its citizenry combined with private investment, and that pairing is really important. So when news broke that the nonprofit organization River LA, which had been doing a lot of work around generating that kind of grassroots efforts, engaged Gary Partners to work on a study for 51 miles of the LA River, it set off a ripple of surprise, support, and anger from design, development, and landscape communities near and far. The announcement came with the unease that Gary's involvement was a, basically just a publicity stunt geared to activate private funding. Billions of Riverside development is at stake. So while Mayor Garcetti evokes the Olmsted Bartholomew plan, our utopia, others feared that Gary's involvement would lead to miles of swoopy metal formalism along the riverbanks. A more modest plan to restore the river to a riparian state titled Alternative 20 was developed by LA-based landscape architect Mia Lair and artist and activist and poet Lewis McAdams of Friends of the LA River. Decades in the making and growing from local community engagement and data-rich analysis, it's now awaiting congressional approval. If it passes through the various hoops and who knows with our administration right now, the proposal would receive $1.3 billion from the Army Corps of Engineers, and then the city of Los Angeles would kick in another half a billion dollars. Embedded in the, in the plan is an already vetted ecosystem restoration study from 2013, and it's really unclear if this new master plan development being undertaken by Gary Partners uh, would inherit all these the approvals and the fundings, or if it would need to start back up at square run. Proponents of a revitalized river hope for different things. Some envision a greenway and a bike thoroughfare cutting through the city in keeping with efforts like such as bike paths in Bogota, Colombia, or Atlanta's Beltway, a former rail easement that turned into parkland. And last year, the city hosted a public art biennial along the river's banks and themed around water. Gary Partners is interested, or they say that they're interested in, um, the river's hydrology at a time of drought, how fresh water might be recaptured rather than dumping into the Pacific Ocean. So while design and implementation is years off, all of this attention on the river has one immediate impact, the rapid rise of real estate prices along the river. With reports of a six-fold increase in one sleepy neighborhood called Frogtown, because it used to have frogs because of the river there, and a near land grab on both the west and east banks of the channelized section uh, of the river that cuts through downtown Los Angeles's arts district which has become, in the last 10 years or so, a very fashionable area that includes things like Michael Maltzen's uh, infrastructure, like mega housing complex, one Santa Fe, 
and the mega gallery space with museum like Ames, Hauser, and Worth, which I'll talk about in a second. Lots of mega going on in a place of, that had been a bit more minor. This awakening of new civic infrastructure spurred speculative development, and with it, the tensions of inequality, displacement, and gentrification, and we'll get to a few of those. So culture. Not far from the banks of the LA River, the city is experiencing a cultural renaissance. Large-scale art galleries are popping up like mushrooms after a storm. There's something like 12 new giant art galleries within sort of a walking distance of the Arts District in Los Angeles. These areas that were formerly industrial or artist lofts are now giant showrooms for art. I would argue that we could mark this utopia with Ed Ruscha's 1968 painting of the Los Angeles Museum on, on fire. Ruscha's oil painting perhaps best represents architect William Pereira's original vision of a museum in a park, minus the flames. Three pavilions arranged in a U and connected by outdoor plazas and fountains. The whole thing floats in this large lagoon. It's a utopia that suggests that high art occupies a rarefied place beyond reach. Ruscha's painting might seem dystopic. It's on fire, after all. But it's a utopia of another kind, that art and culture is an extension of daily life. The museum, as a citadel, must burn. Right now in LA, there are controversial plans on the horizon for a $600 million uh, rent, a new LACMA. And 600 is perhaps the low figure on this one. I'm expecting it to be about a billion. Um, by Swiss architect Peter Zimthor. It, this would replace the Pereira buildings as well as the various uh, additions along Wil Wilshire Boulevard minus the piano buildings. Um, you can see here the scale of the single-story gallery, um, which crosses Wilshire Boulevard. Michael Govin, the director of LACMA, lists the problems with the old building, which requires this new building to come into effect. Those range from narrow galleries, leaky pools, and a $300 million upgrade needed to bring the structure up to earthquake codes. These are all valid points. But my favorite point that he tells is that there's a story about the old building. And this is sort of where we think about how culture is different now than it was then. He said, they took away the fountains because women would get wet walking up the stairs. The fountains had been placed as an act of bad design, I guess, too close to the stairs. So when the wind blows, uh, they would be baptized by their visit. So, Moving to think about across the city, another baptism, this is the bigger splash by David Hockney. All across the city, what we once understood as culture is being reconsidered. Take, for instance, Hockney's A Bigger Splash, which is also the cover of Bannum's Four Ecologies. Recently, the artist Romero Gomez painted an homage to the work called No Splash. In the piece, he replaced the plume of water with a pool cleaner and a housekeeper. Gomez, 
a Mexican-American artist with parents who are undocumented immigrants, wanted to show the people who are left out of the questions of art, culture, lifestyle, and even livability. The trend towards attracting a more diverse, more public, public to arts institutions is not lost on the new museums and galleries in Los Angeles. We were talking about that mega-complex Hauser and Wirth. It's housed in, the, in an old Globe Mills flower complex, and it's 100,000 square feet of art space. The compound is at the epicenter of a neighborhood that is indicative of the rapid cultural change going on in LA. I hesitate to flash the word gentrification here, since the conditions here are less about wholesale displacement more, more than they are about speculation, sort of be talking about the river speculation being driven, and speculative infill. Although the, artist, the former artist community would argue this point. Hauser and Wirth's press materials describe this area as burgeoning. Long gone are the pioneering artists who gave the area its name. They've been replaced by tech companies and boutiques. A Soho house is due to open later this year. The presence of all this is symbiotic with the increased number of eateries and boutiques and also makes possible Hauser and Wirth's narrative of public space and in community engagement. Visitors to this for-profit gallery enter directly into a large courtyard. You can see it here. Um, and in remarks to the press, curator who's actually no longer with Hauser & Wirth, uh, Paul Schimmel touted publicness as the key design feature, excited that people will bring their bag lunches to the open-air courtyard and public garden. There's even a vegetable garden which serves the restaurant, which is embedded in the courtyard, and chickens. Yes, chickens. I've Instagrammed them. Yet, Hauser & Wirth's chicks can't compete with the Instagrammability of Diller's Graffitio Renfro's private contemporary art museum for collectors and philanthropists, Eli and Edie Broad. The photogenic building draws comparisons to belly buttons and cheese graters. And the Broad itself was born of an idea to create an acropolis of civic buildings on Grand Avenue in Los Angeles. But by the time it had opened, ideas about publicness and accessibility had spurned any, any desire for monumentality. City officials, the architects, and the client were driven by the need to activate the street of Grand Avenue. Eli, Eli Broad recalls in his memoir his desire to create, quote, business, retail, restaurants, housing, and inviting spaces to gather for pedestrians to walk. And we know no one walks in LA, and that's changing. So over a handful of years, the city has sponsored small-scale programs inspired by the lessons of tactical urbanism. In the spring of 2014, LA launched an official Parklets program, one of the first in the country. Titled People Streets, the program takes as its mission the transformation of underused areas in 7,500 miles of city streets and wants to make them into active, vibrant, and accessible public space. That same year, the mayor's office announced that the Great Streets Initiative was happening, 
a creative placemaking inspired program that invests in neighborhoods and pedestrian friendly design interventions. And I'll turn the page. <laughs> in underserved uh, corridors. So we're asking what happens in Watts or West Adams or South Central. We're getting some great streets, I suppose. So rather than asking that civic architecture concentrate around icons, this is a low-key, community-based approach to foster public engagement. The Broad recognizes this shifting paradigm. There's a 24,000-square-foot public plaza designed by uh, DSR and landscape architect Walter Hood next to the 120,000-square-foot museum. It's planted with beautiful 100-year-old Baroni olive trees, and there's a small lawn, and there's even a really hip restaurant. The conceit is that museum visitors will make the place urban, will make it a destination. And if anyone comes to LA, you'll see that there's a line around the block to get into the Broad, and there are people with the streetcars pushing the payetas for sale along Grand Avenue, something that you would never have seen uh, a couple of years ago. Given this mood move to the street, Perhaps then we should conclude our cultural survey not with a piece of monumental architecture, but back at LACMA with an artifact that encapsulates and celebrates the monumental, the infrastructural, and the civic. Michael Heiser's levitated mass is presently installed at the museum. It's 340 tons of granite, and it hovers on steel brackets over a concrete channel. It's an excellent place for selfies, as you can see. However, its more important, um, its import comes not from its installation, but from its journey. And here's the roadmap that that boulder took across LA and the surrounding regions. The public embraced Heiser's sculpture not as an art, act of artistic or even architectural transcendence, but as a participatory process tracking a 106-mile route through the county. It was a movable icon of public celebration. The granite chunk was cut from a quarry in Riverside County and loaded into a transport truck. The megalith then traveled at night in a phalanx of police cars and support vehicles through 22 cities and four counties on its way to Los Angeles, passing through neighborhoods that rarely see this kind of art or even this kind of spectacle. A Google map on my website tracked the procession. And the spectacle of a rock gliding down the roadway and through LA neighborhoods filled television screens, Facebook posts, and Instagram feeds. In the end, Edward Shea's utopia is achieved. The museum hasn't burned down exactly, but it has atomized, digitized, and become part of the city and its spectacle of daily life. Health. I'd like to make a quick pit stop in the utopia of avocado toast, or I guess you guys call it smashed avocado on toast, or health on the livability index. Los Angeles has long been at the forefront of connecting the area's abundant produce to health, wellness, and spirituality. The raw food movement dates back to 1918, and the raw food dining room, a spot beloved by celebrity naturopath Philip Lovell. And if that name Lovell sounds familiar for those who are interested in California modern architecture, Lovell's own home was designed by Richard Neutra. 
the Lovell Health House. Featured uh, here, it also included suspended balconies for nude sunbathing to catch the healthy rays, and also for sleeping outdoors. Um, the modernist kitchen in this house was decked out with all the appliances you could ever need, plenty of counter space to cut up raw vegetables for natural food preparation. And if you thought that juicing was a craze now, they had juicers back then. And here we have Father Yod. You guys all know Father Yod, right? Uh, and his vegetarian restaurant, The Source. So if you don't know him, um, he's the founder of the spiritual commune, The Source Family, pictured here with um, his many uh, communal partners, <laughs> acolytes. It was a 60s free love utopia in the Hollywood Hills. Now, Yod unfortunately would meet an untimely death in a hang gliding accident in Hawaii a few years after this picture was taken. Um, but he was best known really for his restaurant, The Source. Here The Source is shown in Woody Allen's film, Annie Hall. And it was based, The Source food was based on, quote, the dietary wisdom found in the teachings of Jesus Christ. Menu items set in motion the health food crazes that would follow across California and across the world in the years to follow. For instance, um, one particular salad, which was very enlightening and sort of thinks about, makes me think about places like Cafe Gratitude and other sort of spiritual plus health living restaurants, was the Aware salad. Aware. And it contained carrots, beets, cucumber, romaine, alfalfa seeds, red cabbage, tomato, sunflower seeds, pine nuts. Are you guys taking notes on this recipe? Um, don't forget, it also included avocado. So, Back to the avocado toast. In June, the New York Times published a guide to avocado toast in Los Angeles. It's a food item that's famously now been pegged to millennials and their unfortunate spending habits, um, but also to their return to the urban core, and yes, again, to gentrification. In mapping the toast to their neighborhoods, as you can see here, with uh, Los Feliz, Atwater, Venice Beach, Echo Park, Echo Park, Venice Beach, Fairfax, and Silver Lake. These are all sort of neighborhoods, hip neighborhoods in and around Los Angeles. And we see that it's not a harbinger of economic change in the city, but it's actually the high period. It's broke. So in places like Boyle Heights, which is a traditionally Latino neighborhood, once Echo Park was very much like that, and now it serves a lot of avocado toast, um, the protesters in Boyle Heights who are fighting this kind of gentrification, they're targeting things like bike lanes and boutique coffee shops as symbols of what might be the inevitable demographic shift coming to their neighborhood. And if we peg foods to ethnoburbs, taco trucks in East LA, Korean barbecue in Koreatown, or Szechuan hot pots in the San Gabriel Valley, avocado toast represents a spreading demographic homogeneity. Echo Park, which was once a primarily Latino neighborhood, is seeing tremendous displacement as housing prices and rents continue to rise in a city short on housing. And in Venice, um, which Charles Bukowski in his novel Hollywood once described as having his tires stolen, it was that dangerous, 
um, and which was also the site of so much experimental architecture in the 70s and 80s, Today, the place is seething with tech entrepreneurs who can afford to spend millions on a beach cottage, so they can afford $16 on some avocado toast. Which takes us to our last utopia, housing. Here we have a scene from Spike Jonze's 2014 scene, uh, film, Her. It takes place in the not-so-distant future in Los Angeles, and Theodore, he looks out across a tall and dense city, a place where the mythical single-family home has been replaced by high-rises. Architect Elizabeth Diller consulted with Jones on the urban design, which blended Shanghai and LA skylines. Of it, she said that it's, quote, it has said a lot more about the kind of monocultural, globalized future where buildings all more or less look the same. It's a very generic space. In short, it embodies banality in a city that fears so much. In many ways, that fear is justified. Most new housing in the city is dreadfully generic and cheaply built. I'd love some of that Balgropen housing to come to LA. But those kinds of experimentations are held up by old zoning requirements and a sluggish building department, which makes it difficult for experimentation to take hold. Yet a tall LA could, maybe should, be a more livable LA. The city is already the densest metropolis in the nation, believe it or not. High-rises built near transit hubs could help ease the reliance on that old freeway infrastructure we were commuting with earlier and increase connectivity and walkability. But last fall, voters were asked to weigh in on Proposition S, the Neighborhood Integrity Initiative, a proposed law that fought high-density projects and was drafted by the anti-development group Coalition to Preserve LA. The organization wanted to stop the, quote, Manhattanization of LA, and these, this is one of their billboards that was put up all over Hollywood and across different parts of Los Angeles. Um, they wanted to slow development. The battle between yes and no proponents was waged over the future of LA and what LA would look like. This need for multi-unit housing versus the suburban character that we so associate with the city. And at the root of this was like the really complex questions over the zoning code and what kind of variances that we could hold because we have a very dated uh, zoning code that hasn't been updated uh, since the 50s, which means every kind of new development requires a variance. Those variances become the target of anti-development groups. So should those variances be halted with new development, which would basically put a stop to it. Luckily, progress prevailed, and S was defeated just barely, um, because the city faces a critical housing shortage. It hasn't kept up with sort of the demands and sort of the flooding in of population. And rising rents make shelter increasingly precarious for renters. Housing prices in Los Angeles, San Francisco, and San Jose, also in San Diego, have jumped as much as 75% over the last five years. Citizens are being left out of this utopia, left out of the dream of livability. There are some 57,000 homeless people in LA County, a place of nine million people. Housing affordable to market rate is critical. Now, this challenge 
isn't new. In the late 1950s, the number of building permits issued for multi-family buildings exceeded those for single-family homes. And the spread of the ubiquitous dingbat apartment building, these sort of soft-story, cheaply-built apartment buildings with the dingbat decorations on the front, um, they swept across the more pastoral, less developed neighborhoods of the city, and they caused as much fear then as high-rises wiping out bungalows do today. But today, multi-unit housing is really a sore spot. Increased density, a point of debate. Skirmishes break out over the smallest developments that might loosen old rules around parking. And this is Dan was talking about parking. It applies here in LA as well. And requirements for multiple residence on a, residences on a single lot. There's a petition circulating in support of the LA City Council's backing of an accessory dwelling unit otherwise known as granny flats, with the hope that in modifying converted parking or setback requirements, homeowners could legally convert garages and add units to their property. On the dingbat, but this could actually be applied to any multi-unit housing type, Bannum wrote that the dingbat is, quote, the true symptom of Los Angeles urban id trying to cope with the unprecedented appearance of residential densities too high to be subsumed within the illusion of homestead living. That illusion of LA tends to default back to a suburban identity woefully out of step with its present needs. And with that, we're back to where we started with the collective dream of Los Angeles coming up against the complex realities. Its utopian ideals and hopes for a livable future requires recognizing where the struggles lie on a neighborhood-by-neighborhood, fine-grain basis. And it's about making sure that a livable city remains an inclusive city. And I believe that those utopias are possible. Thank you.